And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, and you can follow me on Twitter for hour-by-hour, sometimes minute-by-minute updates on big stories going on uh, in the United States, around the world, in Israel. And my Twitter feed is at JakeJakeNY. My name twice, JakeJakeNY. You can also catch me on Facebook as well. I want to talk today about, I guess if I had to do a title for this week's edition, it would be Breaking Point. Uh, we're reaching a breaking point uh, on a number of different places. I, I, I encountered a number of different breaking points, both in a communal and a personal level. Uh, I'm, I'm, fi- I'm hitting that now, and I think a lot of people are. Um, I think, obviously, the biggest breaking point right now we're seeing, and I think this is a great story, is that we're seeing that the coronavirus, COVID-19, does have some kind of shelf life. Um, and this would jive with a, an Israeli professor um, who admittedly is not an epidemiologist, is not an expert on viruses, but based on his analysis a few weeks ago, he felt like the virus, whether you do lockdowns or not, whether you take the precautions or not, and, and obviously taking the precautions from an individual level is a good idea uh, in many cases. But his theory was that the, the virus hits certain areas in certain countries, depending on how large the population is, for about a 70-day period, and then it peters out, no matter what you do. Again, that doesn't mean you shouldn't uh, continue to practice smart hygiene. You know, when this virus is long gone, if people start wash, continue to wash their hands as frequently as they have been, uh, it would be a really good thing for a lot of us. Um, you don't want to be on top of each other if you have symptoms or if you have other, most importantly, if you have other health issues that are serious, that can become serious, obviously you, you want to isolate yourself and do what you have to do. But it does feel like the virus does ha- hits, hits a certain peak and then it goes down. Now let's see if it comes back with any kind of a vengeance. We'll have to check that, obviously. But... In New York, which has been the epicenter of the infections and of the 60% of the deaths in the New York, New Jersey area, we are seeing 14 straight days now of hospitalizations going down. We are seeing deaths at a one-month low. Um, we may have hit, the, you know, this COVID virus may have hit its breaking point here in New York based on presumably some of the efforts to fight it, but also perhaps based on the fact that it just doesn't stay in, a, in an environment very long before it, it peters out. Um, there is so much we don't know about this virus, and I've talked about this previously on Novak Now. I want everyone to follow whatever rules they've been asked to follow by medical professionals. I am not saying that this is phony. I'm not saying that anyone should go out and act irresponsibly. Don't, don't get me wrong. But we still don't know. That doesn't mean we know for sure that the extra precautions we've been taking are the reason why the virus overall is not spreading. Now, if you're someone who absolutely hasn't gone out of his house and has stayed alone in his basement for real, not like Chris Cuomo, I'll talk about that in a second. If you are someone who really did that and you didn't get the virus, then yeah, we know that that is the reason why you didn't get the virus. But as far as the overall reduction in, in infections, the overall reduction in deaths, all of that, I, I, I think, yeah, listen, it probably is because of the way that we battled it. But my point is, scientifically, we don't have that hard evidence yet. So uh, as I've said previously, 
It's not time to start scolding people and making fun of them if their medical professionals or their political leaders are telling them in their towns or in their states it's okay to start going out again and things like that. Uh, Because we don't really know. We don't really know. And New York also, for all the bad things that come with it, and, and and it's annoying to have to be in a situation where you're suffering more than people that you can even see on TV or maybe even two states over. But with New York still being such a more dangerous place as far as the virus is concerned, and it's frustrating, yeah, we're going to have to live under certain measures that other people aren't. And just because they have a little bit more freedom than we do, it doesn't mean they're stupid, and it doesn't mean this is an appropriate time to make fun of them. But I spoke about that on the previous edition of Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network, and you can check that in the archive. That would be the April 20th edition of uh, Novak now. But for this edition, I think we're reaching the breaking point. So the most important thing is it feels like the virus is hitting a breaking point. And, I'm, and, and it's not just a feeling that I have. My friends who are doctors out in the field, many of whom have been treating people out in the field, not just doctors who are surgeons or whatever and, and may or may not have had a lot of personal experience treating these patients. I have many friends who are doctors treating these patients uh, on the front line, so to speak, and they're all telling me that it really seems to be absolutely true. It doesn't seem to be. They know for sure it is dissipating. So breaking point in the virus from a medical standpoint, and that is great news. But of course, I want to talk a lot about the other breaking points that we're seeing in our society right now. Of course, that comes from the economic standpoint. Um, Again, as I continue to repeat my strong assertion that we should follow the social distancing rules when we can, that we should be careful about washing our hands, that people who are susceptible, whether they're elderly people or have an underlying disease, should remain in basically probably in isolation or at least at home. I, I understand that it's not fair and it doesn't seem easy if you see more and more people being able to go up, you know, return to their daily lives when you can't because you have a medical condition. But I am really starting to think that it is now time to go beyond my previous demands, which have been, hey, tell us what milestones we need to hit before we can get the economy going. I think we need to start talking about now getting a schedule, a for real schedule, and not saying it's not, and not shutting down forever. Uh, a real schedule, for, a schedule, not just a milestones, but a schedule for when we're going to do everything from reopen most stores and most businesses to reopening the schools. Uh, we just learned today that the state of Israel is going to reopen schools starting a week from today, so eight, so a week from Monday. So today is Monday, uh, uh, broadcasting this this program. So we're talking about May fourth, uh, and. Israel has a total of about 200 deaths from coronavirus in a population of 9 million or so people. So their death rate has been incredibly low, and we understand that they've taken certain measures, uh, and there may be other factors that made the, the virus less deadly in, New, in, in Israel than in New York, for example. But the state of Israel, I can't think of a nation that cherishes their children more than the state of Israel. There are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, obviously, you have the generations of Holocaust survivors and their children. You also have a situation where the, you know, the, these young people go into the armed forces after they finish their high school years. And so until they get to that point, uh, they're coddled a little bit <laughs> and, and they're cherished in a certain way. I, I, coddled is probably not a fair word because a lot of them go through uh, some tough 
training and, and, and they're expected to do certain things from a responsible level that our high school age kids would never be asked to do. But they're, they're loved and cherished in a way, in a, in a cultural way that you don't see in the United States. Not that our children are not loved and cherished here in the United States, but I don't think they're loved and cherished in any, and people who, who have lived in Israel or been to Israel frequently know what I'm talking about. So for the Israeli government to announce just now that they're going to reopen the schools on May 4th, it's a very big deal. Again, I, 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 I attribute that a little bit to breaking point, break, certainly to the breaking point in the fight against the virus. You know, you had, you've had an Israeli, you had an, you had an Israeli country that has basically kept the coronavirus deaths from anything more than a couple a day increase for weeks and weeks and weeks now. I mean, they, it felt, you know, Israel hit about its 150th coronavirus death, I feel, more like a month ago. Uh, maybe off by a day or two there, but they just hit 200 yesterday on, on Sunday, April 26th. So talk about not having exponential growth. They weren't having, I mean, they were just, ha- they got it down to a trickle. And just about everyone who passed away in Israel was very elderly. Uh, again, not to discount the, short, the shortening of their lives in any way whatsoever, but this is just from a medical standpoint to understand where the threat is to the general public. So to me, that is a very, very big development, one that should not be overlooked, that for Israel to open, reopen its schools and to announce that. Um, and yes, I, I think that the U.S. should reopen its schools in all the states where the schools have been closed very soon as well. Um, again, with the exceptions being for kids who might have severe asthma, kids who might have type 1 diabetes, uh, teachers who may be elderly and, and or otherwise susceptible, yes, we should make exceptions there, and it's not going to be all the same. Um, high school sports, I guess, are, are, in the, are in the trash can for the rest of the year, which is not a small thing. I saw in a letter to the editor in my local newspaper, Newsday, this morning from someone who grew up in Manhattan scoffing at the idea that high school sports are important. And um, I feel sorry for him, actually. I feel sorry for him. Uh, high school sports, there's a lot of ways for kids to learn how to be adults and how to be responsible people. And high school sports, to me, often works a lot better at achieving that goal than geometry class, history class, or even a Talmud here. I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to say. It's just true. Um, if I, and I, I've said this many times, uh, not probably here on the Nachum Siegel Show, but if I were, if they created a superintendent for all the really ultra-Orthodox schools and even the modern Orthodox schools in New York, if, they ever, if, we, if we could ever agree as a people to one man or one woman to be like the superintendent of all the traditional black, you know, black hat to maybe just non-co-ed, single-sex, um, Orthodox day schools, one of the first things I would do would be increase physical education. Um, people laugh at me there. I, I mean, I, 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 I think maybe I'd start a football team at, uh, you know, Chaim Berlin. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that, but I would increase physical education because, and sport and teamwork and all those kinds of things, because the individualism of the student is probably very well, uh, enhanced based from, from the point of view of the kid who has to worry about his own grades and, and, and getting by and learning on his own or her, or her own, uh, in many other ways and in many other ways. But the fact is, is that, you know, sports and those kinds of things, which I guess we just can't resume this year, and it's a shame, and it will be a very big difference. And it'll be a very big difference if a couple of the teachers who are older and maybe have a, an, an underlying condition won't be able to come back to school. And it will be a very big difference if the kids with diabetes won't be able to come back to school this year. All those kinds of things. 
Um, but we should really start thinking about reopening the schools in this country very soon. And I, I shouldn't even say thinking about it. I, I would like to see the schools reopen in the middle of May um, for New York State. I think the chances of that happening are still low because our politicians won't have the guts to do it. Because they won't be, it's not really only the guts, they don't have the foresight and the understanding that keeping the schools closed and basically ending the school year now, uh, or, or uh, de facto ending it in February, whenever you know, the schools started to, to, finally, to, to close, I guess it was early March, uh, will have a much worse effect on these kids than the virus spreading a little bit more uh, with, a point zero, with a 0.1 death rate and those kinds of things, and a much smaller... And what's the death rate for, for people under 20? 0.0000... I mean, I mean it, it's hard, you can't even calculate it. So we're not talking about deaths here of the school-age children. We may be talking about a 0.1 death rate for el- older folks who are maybe teaching in the schools and working in the schools, and for them, I think they should not return. And I understand that school won't be the same without them. But schools should reopen. If they're, if they're reopening them in Israel, they should reopen them here in the United States. And if New York has to be the last state to do it, and if New York City has to be the last city to do it, and if they, even if they just do it for the, la- for the, for the month of June... <laughs> Uh, the value of having some return to school and some way to end the year in class is very, very high. And I, I'm, and again, if they can, you know, they're going to have to do things like eliminate crowded lunchrooms. They're going to have to do a lot of different things to make school feel very different than it usually does. But I, I would take it as a parent. I would take it, and as a kid, I would take it. I mean. I think the kid, the kids out there who hate school more than anybody else, even they want to get back to school and at least see their friends. So that's one thing that to me says breaking point. For Israel to reopen the schools, it means that they feel confident enough medically and they're also seeing the cost-benefit analysis of keeping the schools closed indefinitely is, is, not, is no longer worth it. It's no longer worth it in a state like Israel. Let's see if the United States and, and more, more U.S. states get there. I, I think it's time to do so. And again, not because I'm downplaying anything, but only because I'm playing up the risks of not doing so. Uh, A couple of other breaking points that may have missed your attention, and I think that people should pay attention to this because, you know, I talk a lot about this both on this program and in my columns on CNBC. We should never really listen all that intently to people who make suggestions and predictions and things like that without either considering whether or not, whether or not they have skin in the game financially or reputationally, or where that plays, or or if they do have skin in the game, where exactly that puts them. So we learned over the weekend that the NBA, the National Basketball Association, again, this probably sounds like a small story to you, but I have to tell you, it's a very big story, and I will explain why. The National Basketball Association this weekend said that in the states where some of the lockdown rules have been relaxed, they will allow the NBA teams to begin practicing again in their practice facilities. Now, you're talking about locker rooms. You're talking about close contact. The NBA basketball is a contact sport in case people believe that it isn't. There's a lot of banging and and shoving and touching and all that kind of stuff going on in basketball. But the thing I want to mention here, I want you to remember here, we're talking about the National Basketball Association where even the lowest paid player is basically getting about a million dollars a year and all the compensation that you consider. That's the lowest paid player. The investments that these 
teams have in, in the individual health of each and every one of the 12 players on a roster of an NBA team, we're talking about many millions of dollars. So if these NBA teams are willing to start practices again, and they are, and they have this incredible risk. Their employees, so to speak, are a very expensive multi-million dollar investment, every single one of them. That should tell you all you need to know about how risky it is, how risky an operation this is. Is there some risk? Yes, but clearly these NBA teams and their insurers and their lawyers and their accountants have all looked at this and said, like, look, the chances of death and serious infection and serious health risk are, are, are lower than we thought. When we have, uh, you know, there was the player on the Utah Jazz who had coronavirus and he infected, I guess, one of his teammates, despite the close quarters, despite the fact that they're flying on airplanes together and they were in, lock, and they were in locker rooms together. I think they've looked at that. Both of them have recovered, by the way. And so I think they've decided that this is not worth shutting us down forever. We've got to get the season back going. We've got to get our players back in shape. We've got to get everything moving again. And again, these are not people saying, eh, who cares? These are multi-million dollar investments. If their players get sick, and God forbid if their players die, the financial ramifications of that for these team owners is huge. Much bigger, sadly, than if you know, someone puts me back to work. I'm not, I'm not a multi-million dollar employee of any organization. So... That is a very big story. Again, you've got to look at the people who have skin in the game. And there are people who have uh, other skin in the game, and I'll talk about that in a second. But there's another big story, and that Tesla looks like it's going to be the first major company. And Tesla is, when I say major company, of course, that's a relative term. Obviously, it's a big company compared to your local dry cleaners or an individual restaurant. Uh, Tesla, compared to the amount of people who work for GM, Ford, Chrysler, is tiny. But Tesla does have major factories here and there, right? And Tesla has started to call back its workers for this coming Wednesday, April 29th. They want their workers, not all of them, but dozens and dozens of their workers who work in their Fremont, California plant being asked to come back on Wednesday, April 29th, which is five days before the state of California has basically said they can be allowed to come back. So Tesla's clearly reached, you know, again, another example of breaking point. Tesla is either going to say, Elon Musk and Tesla are either going to say, we're going to defy this order, come and get me, copper. Or what I think is more likely is they'll say, it's like, look, you're telling us that we can ramp, you know, begin our production again on May 4th, but we can't just do that and flip on a switch. We need a few days to prepare. I, you know, Tesla needs to bring back maybe 100 of our employees before then, a few days before then, so that we can flip the switch back on on May 4th. That may be, I think that if you ask me, what their explanation is going to be, that's going to be it. But letter of the law, if they do come back on Wednesday, no matter how many employees it is, it would be in defiance of that California date. Now, they had not said you can come back on May 4th, but they said no, no earlier than after business on May 3rd. In other words, it's not even clear that May 4th is, is, is an okay date for Tesla to, have, to do this. But they're doing it on April 29th, on Wednesday. And again, to me, that says breaking point. That says Tesla saying, like, look, we... We, we no longer believe this is uh, the, the risk of, is, is, is great enough for us to continue to shut down like this. Uh, Elon Musk also may have tipped his hand a little bit. I think it was yesterday or maybe Saturday when Elon Musk retweeted a story about confirming the fact that if hospitals designate a patient as having, suffering from COVID-19, they get paid more by Medicare and, and I guess Medicaid than if it, they don't have COVID-19. So this is Elon Musk adding a little bit of a big question mark. <laughs> I just said a little big. A, a, a question mark, a, a big question mark. 
I don't want to be ambiguous. He is adding a big question mark to that question about, gee, do we really have this many COVID patients out there? Are people really, are the people who are dying supposedly of COVID virus all actually dying from COVID virus or do they just happen to test positive for it and they've died of another disease? Again, not downplaying it. This is a very serious disease that has killed many people. There's no doubt about that. But when you have CEOs of of companies like Tesla and Elon Musk saying, "Eh, you know, maybe we've inflated these numbers a little bit, then that to me tells me a couple of things. It tells me, again, another example of breaking point, another example of companies with skin in the game starting to have to lose the patience. Now, there are companies that have skin in the game in another way that are not losing patients, like Amazon. Amazon, in case you haven't noticed, is doing great during this lockdown. And anyone who thought that Amazon had reached a peak level of saturation point in the market got a good lesson during these last six weeks or so. Their saturation level has reached even higher levels, more and more people ordering from Amazon. Amazon's business has increased. Most importantly, while so many other companies have had major losses in the stock market, although you know, we've seen a decent recovery in the last five weeks or so, Amazon is at an all-time high in its share price. And not surprisingly, we've had Amazon's CEO Jeff Bezos talk about how, well, we need a lot more testing before we can reopen the economy. Now, that doesn't mean he's lying when he says that. He might be right about that. But anyone reporting on this, and nobody did this, by the way, and this is journalistic malpractice, nobody did this. Nobody did the important job of saying, by the way, as long as these conditions continue and this lockdown continues, it's good for Amazon and it's good for Jeff Bezos financially. So we need to take whatever he says about delaying and pushing back the reopening of the economy with a grain of salt. That's what a journalistic responsibility is about. And they're not taking that responsibility. So skin in the game, folks, and breaking point. These are the kinds of, and I think you're going to see more pushback on Amazon and Jeff Bezos from other businesses. And it won't just be Tesla saying, hey, we're opening, you know, whatever, you know, come and get us, come and get us, come and arrest us. I, I don't think they'll have to get to that point, but they're certainly going to make their case for an earlier reopening than the states will allow them. And we'll see what the states are able to do to them. If they're, again, it'll be a similar situation as kind of like the situation of people in a, in a, in, in a jail. You know, you can crack down on one or two people who are trying to escape, but when everyone's trying to escape, the guards do the smart thing and they run away and hide and wait for backup from someone else. So if more and more companies say we're reopening on a certain day, we don't really care what the state says, and it's more and more and more companies, the state officials will back down. The state officials will back down. And we're starting to see that from Governor Cuomo in New York who says that, well, after May, May 15th, we can start reopening the economy with the construction and the manufacturing industries upstate. My prediction now is that he won't be able to hold out until May 15th on that one. I think that within a week or so, he's going to have to say, no, we're going to do it at the beginning of May. Uh, well, that will be the beginning of May. I think he'll have to do it before May 15th. And I think he's going to have to do it. Uh, and I think he's going to have to do it for more of the state than just upstate. That's what I think is going to happen. And I pray that he opens the schools, at least in some parts of this. And again, with with all the restrictions that I mentioned earlier, because we've reached a breaking point. I think families are really put upon. I think children are really being put upon. The children are really suffering here. I mean, you know, we we respect our elders. We want to respect our elders. You know, for years I was brought up to believe that in this country we don't respect our elders enough and we don't give them enough credit and enough and we're not easy enough on them 
and we're not good enough on them and good enough to them. And just look at, at, at countries like Japan and China where they respect elders better. I mean, this is stuff that a lot of you probably recognize. If you're a Gen Xer like me, you probably grew up hearing this. I, I learned this in school. You know, we, we did all these cultural studies about how Japan, they really respect their elders. And if you went to, a, you know, a Jewish school, a Jewish day school or yeshiva, you learned about how important it was to respect our elders. And maybe we don't do that so well in this country. But from an economic standpoint and from a shielding of shielding people from economic issues and other, and, and other tough parts of our life in this country, we actually do a great job of it here in this country. And I don't say this with scorn. I'm just stating, stating this with a fact. The, the richest and most powerful demographic group in the world are elderly Americans. Now, that doesn't mean everyone who's old is rich. And this is not an all-for-one you know, all statement. But the richest group from a point of view of median income and overall average, in, not income, wealth, are elderly Americans. And, you know, that old saying about how wars are fought by young men who, who are, you know, old, old men and get into a fight and they send off the young to die for them in a war. And, boy, is this coronavirus situation starting to look like that in a lot of ways. Not that young people are dying, because hardly any of them are, thank God. But young people are, bear, are, are paying the price economically and culturally and psychologically to protect older people who are more susceptible to the virus. And that's okay to a certain extent. But most elderly people I know will say, protecting me at this level is not worth destroying our country. So even they are willing to make that sacrifice. And we've gone too far. We reach, I think we, you know, we're getting close to breaking point on, on a lot of different levels there. A lot of different levels there. Um, We've seen breaking points in the news media in another bad way. We've seen the news media now start to stretch for stories. A uh, great example of that in the last week was Chris Como at CNN, who we know broke his personal quarantine. Remember, he was diagnosed with coronavirus. He said he had a bad fever. He had some bad symptoms. And he, went, he left the, uh, the studio at CNN and, and did his show from his home. He took, I guess, a couple of days off while he was really suffering with the virus. And then last week, CNN produced this big thing. Here comes Chris Cuomo after his month in quarantine. He's coming out of his basement. He hasn't been out of his basement in a month. And they produced this whole dramatic scene of him coming up the stairs. There was only one problem. It was a lie. We know for a fact that he broke his quarantine at least once by traveling in a car or SUV with his family to, a site, to the site of a house in the Hamptons that he's having built, that he's buying. He was seen by a bicyclist who scolded him for breaking his quarantine, not because he was just a regular guy, but because he had been diagnosed with the disease and told everyone he had it and he was out and about, which you're not supposed to do. And, but they still produce that. To me, that's, break, that's an example of breaking point. That means that, that, that the news media, in this case CNN, is grasping at straws to try to keep the drama going. And so they invented this pretend emerging from a basement after a month not, never leaving story about their own anchor. And they, they did it anyway. You know, listen, can you imagine if anyone else tried to pull this? They would be destroyed, rightfully so. But, you know, when you're an anchor of a liberal news network or, or, and, you're a pro, and you're a Democrat or whatever it is, the, the chances of you having any kind of scrutiny on you are low. But speaking of that, there's another example of breaking point, and that is this Joe Biden uh, sexual assault story that's getting out there, the alleged assault. Uh, and again, that story getting more attention right now, and you can look it up, the name of the woman accusing him is Tara Reid. The more and more attention that that story gets gives you an example that there's been a breaking point. Even the news media looking to move away a little bit from the coronavirus story. Even though a tremendous amount of the news media is not covering the story, but they're starting to. 
And that tells you that there's another breaking point going on. Look, folks, it's, it's time to reopen. It's time to get the schools back open. It's time to do all of those things, again, with all of the exceptions that I talked about before and all the safety measures that we can take. We have to do that. I hope we start doing it. Everyone have a good and safe, healthy week.